Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network. Now I'm coming to you from Nash Port, Ohio, uh, where our head offices are, but I'm also joined by my son, John Mark, who's uh, up in Perrysburg. Hello, John Mark. Afternoon. And uh, it's a pleasure to join you all on this. Thank you for those of you special who've been listening to the podcast. We hope it's an encouragement to you. We're trying to do this on a regular basis, partially because we hope that some of you who regularly listen will respond to some of our, our requests and thoughts so we can hear your thoughts about this program, whether this is encouragement to you. Our goal with the Deep in Scripture program is we believe that by being deeper in Scripture and deeper in history, we grow deeper in Christ. Uh, as we know, the, the depth and the height and the breadth and the width of our faith. Uh, it's too easy today, especially because we're 2,000 years away from the actual life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, that it's something that way long ago, or we just think, I just got the Bible, I'll read it. Well, there's a whole lot more to the context, and that's what we try and focus on in this program. Now, I've proposed a, uh, a section for John Mark and I to discuss, and uh, as I was preparing for this, I felt very sheepish about attacking this wonderful scripture for a couple of reasons. One, I happened to, to get in contact recently with one of my old Presbyterian pastor buddies. We haven't talked in many years. I think it was partially because I'd become Catholic and it just kind of caused us to drift apart. But we finally got connected together through email and we, we've reestablished our connection, which is really good. And it was good to hear what he's doing now. He's in his 60s. He's very active worldwide in, in missions, uh, still a Presbyterian. But he told me that the, the main thing he does every week, which he spends 20 to 25 hours doing every week, is preparing for a community Bible study that he teaches every week. And then I'm thinking about how much time, John Mark, you and I are ready to prepare for this, and I feel really sheepish about that. My good friend is giving the Scriptures the preparation it deserves. And I'm trying to commit myself that as we get all this busyness behind us that I'm going to start spending that much time for every Deep in Scripture program because there's so much here. Um, the other thing is we're looking at Hebrews, and I want to recommend those of you listening, if, if you'd love to read a great commentary on the book of Hebrews, I highly recommend a book called The Epistle to the Hebrews and the Seven Core Beliefs of Catholics written by Shane Kapler, with a foreword by our good friend Dr. Kenneth Howell, and that's by Angelical Press. Highly recommend it. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Um, it's highly in the back, all the people that recommend this book, uh, even Bishop Michael Sheridan. So just, a, and the point there is when you read a book like that, then it even makes it more difficult to feel free to just grab a verse out of the middle of this great book. Yeah. Uh, there's so much that comes in the background. However, we're going to jump into today, briefly, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And I thought, John Mark, it might be good for us to look at this because it seems to me this is an important uh, challenge that the author of Hebrews is making, particularly at this time, 
for us in the weeks after the day of Easter. Mm-hmm. Because as the author of Hebrews is concerned with, we could have the same concern today. Uh, after all the attention and the beauty and the pageant and the celebration and the hallelujahs of Easter, mm-hmm. that we can, we can slough off and we can forget. Which is why the church has always emphasized that Easter doesn't end on Easter Sunday. It's a full right. season. Yeah. So the point of that is for it to, to, to uh, get a grip on our hearts and minds so that it really makes a difference in our lives. So, John Mark, maybe I'll have you read it, and then I'll start our discussion. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and I'm assuming, John Mark, you might be reading from the RSV. I am, yes. Okay. And just you know, quickly, again, thanks thanks to all listening. Our website is chnetwork.org, and you know, as we go through this Easter season, uh, especially if there are any amongst uh, you listening who have recently come into the church, we'd love to hear your stories. We'd love to connect with you, uh, connect with a whole community of, of converts and people who are discovering the Catholic Church. That's chnetwork.org. So let's see. Yeah, let's dig into this. Okay, so you want me to start with verse 22? Verse 19. Verse 19. Okay. 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thank you, John Mark. This is a, uh, an understatement, but there's so much in that paragraph that right. we can talk on. And I think before we jump into it, to know the context of the situation in which the author of Hebrews is writing is absolutely important. To me, that's often the, the shortcomings of a, of a Bible alone approach because that a kind of approach can assume that all the data we need to know is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. When the truth is that it's it's very, very essential that we take a step back and try and understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so the author of Hebrews, it may have been Paul, originally it was thought to be Paul, I still think it's Paul, but we're not 100% sure. But is he's writing to Jewish Christians, and what's fascinating, given our our presentation last week in Deep in Scripture, we recognize that one of the biggest awakenings of the early church was this idea that the gospel goes not just to Jewish Christians, but to Gentiles. Right, right. That changed everything. It had been prophesied, it had been taught throughout the Old Covenant, our Lord referenced it, but it took a while for it to sink in to the 
apostles because Jesus had said, hey, I've not come to, to change the law, I've not come to set it aside, not a dot or tittle. And then we look back in the Old Testament and it said that the covenant sign of circumcision was to be the covenant sign for eternity. So you can see how it'd be hard for the early church to feel comfortable changing something. Mm-hmm. So they were in a way in a conundrum. It's got to go to the world, but how does it go to the world? Do they have to become Jews first? And it took the work of the Holy Spirit, zapping Cornelius and others, to convince Peter and then Paul and then the church, which decided in at the Jerusalem conference, Council in Acts 15, that these Gentiles didn't need to be cir- circumcised Jews first before they could be followers of Jesus Christ. So it was a radical change. But, and I think I proposed last week, that it seems to me that that experience so radically changed the church that it radically changed Paul's whole understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of that comes what he wrote in all of his epistles. And we see it here in Hebrews too. That's why I do think it's Paul. Um, In fact, if you will, it changed Paul's complete understanding of his vocation. Mm -hmm. Because before that, he's just representing the mission of the gospel. But from then on, he realizes he is an evangelist to the Gentiles. He saw that as his mission. So why is there a book of Hebrews written to Jewish Christians? Well, with this emphasis moving to the Gentiles who come from a pagan background, the gospel very often then is couched in symbolism and analogies that help the Greeks understand the faith. Mm-hmm. And so in time, you can see the Jewish Christians kind of wondering, well, what about our heritage, our understanding? And in a way, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Your heritage of the sacrifice of the priesthood, of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle, of the blood and the, and the flesh of Christ, that is the foundation for not only our understanding of our new relationship with God, but as the pattern for all continued worship. And so we have this wonderful exposition in Hebrews, which we're not going to do in this short program. But that's the background, if you will. And again, I, I recommend Kapler's book. But when we look at this paragraph, just as an overview, if you want to outline this paragraph, Basically, verses 19 through 21, if you will, it begins with the word therefore. So in other words, given all that's come before in Hebrews, and if you will, 19 through 21, summarize the truth of Easter. That's what it's about, the truth of Easter and what it means and what it's accomplished for us. That's what 19 through 21 is. And therefore, as a result of that, what happened at Easter, and what that means for us, then there's three things. Verse verse 22 is our call to draw near. Verse 23, to hold fast. Verse 
And then verse 24 and 25, to encourage one another. As then in conclusion, the anticipation on the one hand of the day drawing near. So there's the motive, the energy. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look down verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, I mean, there's the anticipation. He's coming. What's that old joke? He's coming, so look busy. You know, know, he's coming. The motive, whether that's the second coming of Christ or the fact that we'll stand before his tabernacle with our own death and, uh, and standing before God. So that's a summary of this. Now, I will say beforehand, the verse of this section that I primarily want us, the reason I, I want us to look at this was verse 25, in which it's interesting. It's kind of a tag in, in if you will. It was an afterthought. He put this in here. Because you could easily have said, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast with a confession. Then 24, let us consider how to stir one another and encourage one another. But then he puts in this little thought, not neglecting to meet together as at the habit of some. There's a problem already starting in, if you will, the post-Easter down of people thinking they've arrived. Thinking never arrived. This is what Jesus did at Easter, and it changed my life. And so I don't need to do anything anymore. And so pretty soon they drift away. Now, John Mark, is that expressive of anything happening in our culture? Oh, yeah, in so many ways. <laughs> yeah, and in, in so many ways that, um, you know, that need to, to persevere. Um, I mean, something that jumps out at me with this. Uh, it, talking about neglecting to meet together i guess just you know not taking seriously yeah the, the interdependence of the christian community needing to rely on each other needing to disciple but also to be discipled by others um uh there are so many aspects of our culture both you know from the technology just to the the, the manners and mores where we're used to uh drifting off and and becoming isolated and kind of doing things on our own um, and then, so, too, so many of our relationships are mediated by the technology. Um, we have here in the early church this call to to persevere in the faith, but also to, to do it together, to meet together, uh, to partner together. You know, and uh, I think we can't take for granted. I mean, here we are talking uh, over the over the internet and and the coming home network. We conduct many of our meetings uh, over the the video conferencing, which is nice because people live near their families, but even with all that, not taking uh, for granted the importance of being physically present to our families, to our parish community, to those people that God's put in our lives. So, Well, let's go back then and then kind of briefly look at this passage. And the main goal is, what does it say to us today? Pretty Almost 2,000 years after this letter was written, if we will. Mm-hmm. And so if we look at verse 19, therefore, brethren, so we have this common word, that unites the family of God, the church of God, brethren. Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, pause for a second. And what I want to emphasize is when we say 2,000 years later, or whatever the exact years are, a lot has happened in those 2,000 years that has clouded the water over what worship is all about. It wasn't though there was, of course, scandal and problems in the church leading up to the Reformation, the gathering for worship was pretty united. There were different rites, the Gallican rite, the Eastern rite, the Roman rite, there were different, the Ambrosian rite, if you will, the, the, uh, the liturgy of John Chrysostom. There were different ways that, but they were all, if you will, an image of what we just described in those verses. You have a priest, and you have the body, and they have the blood. And you're entering the sanctuary by the blood and the flesh. The, the curtain has been opened. We enter into worship, and there is a priest. And he uses the imagery of the Old Testament priesthood in the imagery of our Lord in the heavenly sanctuary, but we know from the early church fathers that this is exactly the parallel with the gathering of the early Christians, wherever they were, mm -hmm. whether they're in the makeshift early churches or in someone's home. They weren't, it wasn't a kickback fellowship, coffee and donuts. They were entering into the sanctuary because mm -hmm. of what Christ had done for them, the body and the blood was recognized from the very beginning as a continuity with the Last Supper and the celebration that we see in 1 Corinthians 11, which is repeated in every Mass. And so here it is, and they're gathering together. And the thing that I wanted to emphasize here is something that I didn't see when I was a Protestant minister, and I did not preach much on Hebrews as a Presbyterian, because frankly, I didn't know what to do with all this sacrifice and sanctuary, priesthood, and all these images. But the truth is that in the earliest days of the church, we'd have to almost say almost uniformly for hundreds of years, if we ask the question, how did the average Catholic Christian and they're all Catholic Christians for at least the first thousand years until the division with the East. Mm. How did the average person, wherever they lived in the in the Roman Empire, know their faith? They didn't have books in their homes. Because up until the mid fourteen hundreds, every book was hand copied. They didn't have Xerox machines, they didn't have copiers, scanners printing presses, none of that. So your average person, few average people, had a Bible, let alone any book, in their homes. That was not the norm. The rich did, the highly educated maybe, but the 100%, you know, 90% of them did not have that. They didn't have what you and I, John Mark, are using now. They didn't have an internet. They didn't have satellites, they didn't have television. They didn't have tape recording. They didn't have any of these 
They also didn't have travel. They couldn't jump on a train or a plane or a boat or a plane or a car. So how'd they learn their faith? And I, I really think it's important to think about that. We, mm-hmm. We're so spoiled by what we have that we forget. How did they learn their faith? And how did it spread all around the Mediterranean, all the way up to England, Germany? <clears throat> how did it spread? We might presume it was evangelists, certainly. But what it always was, was the gathering together for the Mass. And this is not just a Catholic trying to read back into history. No, this is the continuity that we see. And here in Hebrews, we see the image of it, the Mm -hmm. priest drawing into the sanctuary with the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny because that you know we we encounter many people who come from a background where they have a, um, a discomfort with with liturgy or with prescribed prayers. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of interesting angles of that. I, th- I think one of the things is for me, like we have in the example of Christ, you know, our great high priest, we have him giving us one of our preeminent prayers in the Our Father. And if we think about you know what goes on in the New Testament. You know, Christ sends us the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we receive the Holy Spirit. We become one with Christ through the Eucharist. You know, we're incorporated into the body through baptism, through the Eucharist. And then with and in, or as you know, as, this, as the priest says in the Mass, through him and with him and in him, we pray to the Father. And so, I, I for me, liturgy is such a beautiful thing because it's not just something that we came up with. It's another part of this deposit of the faith that the church has been guided into by the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, there's a, there is a place for expository prayer. I was thinking about this this morning. Um, I led prayer at my men's group this morning and then today at our, at our little staff meeting. And even though I pray expositorily to start that out, even that ends up in a, in a rote format because I, I, you know, the, we, we grasp at the same words and phrases every time. That's just, that's just what happens when we pray over time. You know, in the mass that we have this preeminent form of worship and prayer that the church, you know, for again for 2000 years in basically the same format that this is our preeminent prayer. This is our preeminent act of worship. It's also as you as you were pointing out, it's it has been for most of that 2000 years the preeminent uh place where we are fed both um you know sp- spiritually in our in our will uh you know, in the in the strengthening of our spirit and the cleansing of our hearts through the reception of the Holy Eucharist, but also in our minds through the reception of the Word, and so it really is this preeminent, you know, source and summit of our of our lively faith in Christ. Yeah, the uh, the if in Hebrews chapter eight, um, again, I, I don't want to open up this beautiful candle of, I don't want to say can of worms, the book of Hebrews is so much there. I didn't mean it in a negative sense whatsoever. It's with me trying to interpret it. Gummy worms. I make a can it of gummy can worms. Of, but the, the author says, now the point in, in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent, which is set up not by man, but by the Lord. He's talking about the sanctuary of heaven, and so we see the heavenly, now we use the word liturgy, 
And where's the word liturgy come from? The word in chapter 8, verse 2, for a minister in the sanctuary, a minister. The word minister is the English translation of a Greek word, liturgusen. Mm. I don't have the Greek in front of me, so I'm doing it by memory. Liturgy, the liturgist, if you will. But not the liturgist we think of today, who's somebody that sits around and kind of writes up the word. No, that is the minister. The word for minister is the person that does the work of God. Liturgy. It's interesting sort of take on faith and works. You know, sometimes Catholics are accused of relying on their works. No, for us, the greatest work, you know, uh, it is, as it's going to says in the Mass, it is right and just, our duty and our salvation. Uh, this greatest of work, this work of the people of God, the liturgy, is something that we believe that God has guided us into. You know, the very greatest thing that we can give to God is a gift that He has led us into, that He has formed the Holy through the Holy Spirit in, in the church. Um, certainly, we give God all of our lives, all of our our work, all of our prayers, every part of our life. But this preeminent gift is precisely. Uh, you know, with Christ as the high priest, the presentation of his own body and the people of God as the body of Christ. It's in the mass where our greatest gift, uh, we're able to give that to God, but it's through God's grace that we even have that gift to give. Let me read a, a fairly long quote, though, that I think it's, it, I wish I had heard it when I was a non-Catholic. And uh, it was written uh, about a hundred years after Hebrews right, by Justin Martyr. And here's what he says. On the day we call the day of the sun, all who dwell in the city or country gather in the same place. The memoirs of the apostles, which we now call the New Testament, and the writings of the prophets, the Old Testament, are read as much as time permits. When the reader has finished, he who presides over those gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate those beautiful things. Then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions and faithful to the commandments, so as to obtain eternal salvation. When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss of peace. Then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together. To him who presides over the brethren, he takes them and offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks, or Eucharistion, that we have been judged worthy of these gifts. When he has concluded the prayers and thanksgiving, all present give voice to an acclamation by saying, Amen. And when he who presides has given thanks and the people have responded, Those whom we call deacons give to those present the Eucharisted bread, wine, and water, and take them to those who are absent. I mean, John Mark, that's almost word for word what we do today, 1,900 years later. And so it isn't, the point is it isn't some kind of thing that was added later or a, a creative idea. The, the, the leadership of the church has always focused on conserving and preserving this gathering from the very beginning. Yeah. 
where you see in history books of the church the battles between Cyril and uh, uh, the different, you know, over the meaning of Christ or the Trinity and all. You know, those are the battles that happened at high levels. But the most important people of the early days of the church, we don't know their names. They were the local ministers, liturgists, the priests, who led the people Sunday after Sunday as they gathered, and that was the one place they could celebrate this new life they'd received in Christ. Yeah. And this is where, after now, we, we, this is the background here. And so we see that summarized in verse 19, 20, and 21. We have this thing that's happened to us. We've been changed. We can enter into heaven. The Mm -hmm. curtain has been cut aside by the blood and body of our Lord, and we have there our high priest. And so we gather for the sacrifice. And so that's why the author then says three things. Given that, number one, verse 22 Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We see in that verse the two things that bring us into union with Jesus Christ and one another, faith and baptism, faith and baptism. Uh, these are the things our Lord said at the end of Mark. You know, if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. If you don't believe, you won't be saved. So if you don't believe, you aren't going to be baptized. That's why he doesn't mention it the second time. But if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. The necessity of baptism as the entrance in. And we see that here. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So this is important. It isn't merely baptism. Mm-hmm. It isn't just, well, you're baptized, saved. No, it's a both and. You draw a true heart in full assurance of faith. He emphasizes heart. Someday I hope somebody does a PhD study on how the essence of the Christian faith is a converted heart. Because all through the scriptures, the emphasis on a changed heart, not just a mind, but a changed, deep, converted inner being. And he uses the word true, that idea of if you were true, if you're trying to true up a, a board that's bent, mm-hmm. to true it makes it straight. And yeah. so this is a heart that's straight in line with our Lord. A, p- a pure heart. One of my favorite quotes is from Kierkegaard, the way he describes purity of heart, he says, is to will one thing. As a real simple summary of what purity of heart is, and so we—it's always—it's always a process of continually winnowing our heart, you know, and separating the wheat from the chaff, and returning to that—that that central, that one primary thing that our heart should be attached to only, and that is God. So, in this thing, our hearts through baptism mm-hmm. have been cleansed from an evil conscience. So now our hearts are are more pure vessels for the fullness of the truth of what has happened at Easter. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's pointing out here that it involves our intellect and our will to draw near. 
All right, folks, it happened to you at Easter, but now what are you doing? It takes intellect and will to fight the distractions, to protect our heart. The Eastern writers particularly talk about guarding the heart. Guarding the heart, because that's where the battle is. Mm -hmm. To draw near. Full assurance of faith. Mm -hmm. Full assurance of faith. And it's it's not our faith that is the ground of our assurance. It's Christ that's the ground of our assurance. Faith in him. Right. right. So that's why we are empowered to draw near. Okay. Then the second thing, verse 23, is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Now, John Mark, um, we know the three theological virtues, faith, hope, I and just love. noticed this. I didn't, I mean, the first time reading through it, it didn't, I didn't notice that, yeah, that we have in 22, faith, 23, hope, and in 24, love. Yeah, huh. th- there they are. Yeah, somehow I missed that. <laughs> the theological virtues are there, the, the, the background, the faith and the hope and the love and how they, the faith is what draws us near. The hope is what gives us the foundation to hold fast. Right. And then the love is how we live that out. Mm-hmm. And they're all gifts of grace. Yeah. As the as our Lord changes us because of what happened at Easter. I mean, that's the point here. Because of what happened at Easter, therefore, this is the truth, the faith and the hope and the love drawing with full assurance, drawing near, holding fast. And then, of course, verse 5 is, uh, you know, encouraging one another in, to do the love and the good. But, but before I jump onto there, 23, mm-hmm. another part of that, John Mark, which is let us hold fast the confession of our hope. It's funny, I, almost my, I find my tongue wanting to say, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. <laughs> yeah. But he pulls a twist on it. It isn't confession of our faith, confession of our hope right? without wavering. Now, I know, John Mark, you've done some studies on the theological virtual. What is this hope? What's the essence? of? There's faith and there's hope. And what is the difference sure. between faith and hope? I think there's there's a few different ways to analyze them. I, I think one of the things that I, I sort of – it. I began to understand over the recent years in looking at faith, hope, and love is, is in one sense there there are a few sides of the same coin. You know, they're all uh, different aspects of the same phenomena, the same relationship with God. They're theological virtues because they are only uh, they only come from God, and they they're you know the kind of the working of that out that relationship with God uh, through grace. You know, so we have faith in a person, we have faith in Christ. You know, hope is kind of looking ahead. Hope is, is um, it's directed towards a goal here. Um, but yeah, all three of them, they're, they, it is funny that you can oftentimes interchange them because they really are uh, just emphasizing different aspects of this relationship with God. You know, this faith in a person, the personal God who has come to meet us, to encounter us and to engage us but also to have hope in the promises and in, in what he's shown us in his power. Um, but also always in that relationship of, of love. I mean, that's the reason that we can put our faith in this, in this perfect person because he's, 
he is perfectly loving. You know, we we love the Lord, and and because uh, uh, because he is eminently lovable, and because he is eminently faithful, as it says up above, we're able to put that perfect hope in him. Yeah, if you have, if you will, faith, hope, and love are the different ways that grace expresses itself in our lives by empowering us to believe faith, empowering us to hope for the future, in other words, uh, not to get caught up in despair and, and, you yeah. know, what, and, and trusting God for the future. That's hope, if you will. Uh, and then love is reaching out maybe to people that you don't get along with. I mean, so it's really this grace showing itself in our actions. Mm-hmm. Um, in just the next chapter, verse 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So they're very very close. Yeah. They're very close. But I often I, think, yeah, when I think of hope, for me, in, in moving into the Catholic understanding of the of the faith from my... Presbyterian background, where I was a once saved, always saved. I mean, hope didn't make sense. I just knew I was saved. Yeah. You know, because what Jesus did for me, I'm going to arrive. Doesn't matter. I live my life. Luther said he could commit adultery ten thousand times in a day and not lose his salvation. Well, uh, we can talk about the, the reality of that in, in other ways. But the, the point <laughs> is, um, is if my life did make a difference, sin boldly. Well, that's not what Luther meant, but it was interpreted that way. Hope is a little bit different. Hope is uh, as the doors of heaven have been, the curtains have been opened up, as it said in the because of what Christ did for me. And I have faith in what he did for me, and I'm changed. And as Paul said, I hope uh, that one day, uh, by the mercy of God, so the, the emphasis is not on me when I look to the future, the emphasis is always on him. Yeah. In fact, I much, once read a, a great French uh, Jesuit writer from 200 so years ago called Father Gros, and he uh, wonderful books. And he said the problem with this discussion about salvation is often that people spend too much of their time focused on themselves. Am I saved? What do I need to do to be saved? Um, what are the criteria of this? And he said the problem is that leads to self-centeredness. What we should focus on is faith, hope, and love, and leave eternity to Jesus. Our faith in Christ, our hope in his mercy, and then love. Yeah. Reaching out love, which is really what's talked about here. Verse 22 is faith. Verse 23 is hope. Verse 24 yeah. is basically encouraging one another to love and do good works, he says. Right. Yeah, we were, we were talking about the up above this true heart or purity of heart and the guarding of one's heart. I feel like uh, that's involved a lot with hope, too, in the sense of to be able to persevere, um, there, there needs to be this guarding of one's heart. You know, we can, our, our, we can be impure of heart in the sense of our heart can be attached to many things, and as it becomes attached to many things, even if those things are in addition to being attached to God, still our, our will, our, our our faith, hope, and love are diluted amongst those things. I think part of hope is in keeping our eyes on, on that that true love of our heart, 
that true goal, that true promise that we have. Um, and just recognizing that if we let our heart be attached to other things, you know, that that's what taxes our hope. That's what, you know, it, that's what works against us being able to persevere as, as we're being called to here. Yeah, this reminded me of in the book of Revelation, when John is having the, um, the vision, uh, he's called to write seven letters to seven churches. And so these are not uh, this letter of Revelation is not a whole lot later than the book of Hebrews, you know, within the same generation of people. So we have churches in the Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, Philadelphia, Ephesus, that um, started out great and then lost their first love. Things changed. And in the letter the message to Philadelphia in Revelations 3, beginning verse 7, he eventually says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the cynic. It goes on, but let me jump down. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown, he who conquers. So already the, the battle is waging in the early days of the church of the devil and his horde to destroy this the, the growing Christian church. And so he Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. That's almost exactly what the author of Hebrews says here. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Uh, uh, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Mm. For he who promised is faithful. That's almost identical to what it said in Revelation. Then, of course, the end of that paragraph, as you see the day drawing near, the importance of that. The, so the importance of holding fast. Then verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So the point is they've had this Easter celebration, the Easter reality of what Christ has done for us through the, his death and resurrection, the, the, the uh, entering through the sanctuary by his blood and his body. But the point is we need to move on and continue to persevere, to draw near with a true heart, to hold fast the confession of our hope, and then to encourage one another because it's not something we do alone. But we're a part of the body of Christ through the baptism we mentioned in verse um, 20. So John Mark, bring this to a close. Why is it so important in verse 25, given all these things, to say, now, now wait a second, now don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. And you know, you think about it, here we are 1,800 years later, only 20% of the world are Catholic. At best, half of those are regular attenders at Mass. Yeah. Certainly there are many other Christians that are not Catholic, but I know as a Presbyterian pastor how hard it was to get people who had been baptized, who had once 
come through the doors to keep going to -hmm. church. And so we have in this one of these earliest letters of the New Testament already recognizing that there are people who've experienced the Easter truth, have changed their lives, but they need to be prodded to draw near, to hold fast, to encourage one another, because sadly many already are drifting away. Yeah. You know, one of the things that that living in community, coming together with other people uh, gives us, it, it does help us, I think, it provides us, you know, as steel sharpens steel, being with other people, other, other uh, you know, faithful followers of Christ, it does help us to purify our hearts. You know, when we, when we there's, there's a, there is, there can be a tendency to, to kind of go off alone with our attachments and, and even to, to kind of fool ourselves, you know, into maybe thinking that we are further along than we, than we actually are. When we come together with other people, especially others that can really disciple us, that we can there can be a mutual discipleship. Um, there is this accountability to really look at our hearts and to examine their purity, and to again, I, yeah, I love you know twenty three and twenty four here. That you know we need others to be able to you know bring us back to this hope that we need to be that we need to be fixed on so that we can persevere. And I do like this image too of stirring up one another to love and, and good works. You know, it's not, it, it's, it's, you know, we're trying to in, encourage each other to again return to this, to this, um, well, to the, to, yeah, to the liturgy here, to our, to this, to what we've been called to here, but to, to stir ourselves up again, to rediscover what we have, but often again on our own uh, can become. Uh, cold, apathetic. Yeah, the again, the, the cloudiness of Christianity over these centuries because of the divisions that have happened and then the different traditions that have arisen over the years and by the hundreds and maybe literally the thousands of different understandings. And then we got to the point where today where everybody just figures, well, I know, I, I just know how to worship and I'm out on the golf course and I'm worshiping God or you know, I get the graces I need by reading the Bible or reading a good book or, or you know, I'm out helping the poor, so that's all I need to do. Yeah. We recognize when we go back in history that the way that Christians received the grace of God and were empowered to continue in their faith was through the gathering together in the weekly celebration of the yeah. Eucharist. That was the, the way. It yeah. was, that was thrown out in the Reformation to the extremes where you have Quakers and others that, that mm. or um, the Shakers, I think, are the groups of the quietists where they just sit, you know. There's no yeah. liturgy, no ritual, none of that. And that's been cast out when, in fact, that was from the very beginning. That's why looking at the early church fathers, you see the thread of the liturgy not being invented as we go along, but being preserved. Yeah. And uh, if, if you will, the, the biggest struggles in the early churches, you've got the Jewish community and the Gentile community coming together. And so you see the Holy Spirit guiding the early church to establish a liturgy that then was preserved and celebrated in little groups everywhere around, around the known world. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting, some of the things that the modern mind can project uh, on, well, on other people, and in, in regard to, to liturgy, the, the things that can kind of come to the modern mind when it encounters that. Peter Kreeft, uh, in a talk once, kind of pointed this out, how the modern mind can tend to look at, for instance, the Catholic Mass, if they're unfamiliar with it, and they can see a priest taking the liturgy very seriously. You know, each each word, each symbolic gesture, you know, the the people attending Mass, you know, standing up, sitting down, doing their things. And they can look at that from the outside, and there can be this tendency to say, you know, look, look how seriously those people are taking themselves and assuming there's some sort of vanity or pride or show going on. Uh, but but he points out that you know for for humankind, I mean certainly we we recognize and it, and certainly it it talks about this certain places in scripture that external ritual can become that, but it's not necessarily that. You know, for humans, we we perform our rituals um, as an act of obedience and humility to the community. I mean, think about the man who gets down on one knee and you know and presents a ring and asks you know, with the words, uh, a lady to marry him. He's going through a familiar ritual to show, this is how the community, this is how the human community shows this reverence, this respect, this seriousness about what's being done here. And so, you know, in the liturgy, um, it's, it's, it's an act of submission and humility to go through this preeminent prayer, uh, this preeminent prayer that the church gives us, but also, you know, recognizing that the church being guided by the Holy Spirit, formed this liturgy as our preeminent act of, of worship. And so it's, again, coming out of ourselves, going to the community, coming together with people and praying this preeminent prayer, this offering of ourselves and our hearts in the liturgy is his way of, of approaching God and, and worshiping him on his own terms, you know, entering into this prayer that he's given us uh, and again, in there, there's such a, a purifying of our hearts. You know, we we go to God with all that we have, but we even go to God and say, Lord, show me how to give you proper worship, you know, an acceptable offering and sacrifice. Yeah, the irony is, as our good Christian brothers and sisters, non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters who have great devotion to Scripture, almost to the point of the Bible alone, although there's no one in the world that really operates by Bible alone. Everyone looks through scriptures through some kind of lens, some tradition, whether it's a Calvinist or or a Methodist or whatever it is. But the irony is that most don't realize that the only reason we have the New Testament is because it was read in liturgy. That's the only reason. Because in the earliest days of the church, for several hundred years, again, as we mentioned, no one has the Bibles except priests and bishops. But your average person, they gather together to hear the memoirs of the apostles read, to hear the prophets read. That's how they learn their faith. And so when the Hebrews is writing about, since this has happened to you, therefore, you got to draw near and you've got to uh, uh, hold tight to the faith and you got to encourage one another, stir one another up. That's all about coming together to receive the Lord in the Eucharist and hear the word proclaimed. That was the point. That was the point. And if you will, maybe in closing, John Mark, um, 
in the night when our Lord was betrayed and they gathered for that first celebration, our Lord said something. He said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the call from the beginning to abide in Christ and to abide together, not alone. That was the call, if you will. And there's only one other time in the Gospel of John where our Lord Jesus tells us how to abide. And that's in John chapter 6. When he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's through the celebration of the liturgy and the thanksgiving, the Eucharist, that we abide with him and abide. And that's why even after the great joys of Easter, we've got to be encouraging one another to draw near, to hold fast, and to do the works of love uh, to help others who've not discovered Jesus yet, to come to be a part of the family. Some closing thoughts about our work, John Mark. Sure thing. Well, again, as always, thanks for for listening. Um, If you are not uh, a subscriber to the Coming Home Network newsletter, please go to chnetwork.org slash join or click uh, newsletter up in in the menu for more information about the Coming Home Network newsletter. You know, as a community of uh, non-Catholic Christians who have discovered the Catholic faith and many who are on that journey, you know, th- it's all about staying connected with through the stories and through prayer for one another. Uh, and as we proceed through the rest of this Easter season, again, we invite you, if you're not already connected, to get connected, to come together, you know, with the community of believers, to learn more about your faith and to be encouraged as we discover uh, Christ's church uh, in all of her fullness. And so that's chnetwork.org. Uh, where you can subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, And yeah, once again, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, John Mark. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.